When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Lauren Willig about her latest novel, The Summer Country. I've been a fan of Lauren's work since I first ran across The Secret History of the Pink Carnation, so it's a special delight to have a chance to talk with her. Summer Country takes place on the island of Barbados in the 19th century. The main storyline follows Emily Dawson, a young Englishwoman who has long been the poor relation of the more affluent Fenty family. In 1854, Emily inherits a plantation from her grandfather that she didn't even know existed, and she travels with her cousins to Barbados to see her new property, only to find it in ruins. A second storyline traces events 40 years earlier that turn out to be crucial to understanding Emily's legacy and the condition in which she finds it. Bridgetown, Barbados, February 1854. Emily! Adam shouted. Her cousin was standing by a barouche, a barouche so shiny and new that the black lacquer dazzled the eyes. To be fair, Emily's eyes were dazzled already. Sun blind, rainbows dancing everywhere. She felt dizzy with wonder and delight. When they anchored in Carlisle Bay just after noon, the island had seemed a fairyland drawn in pastels. Houses bleached by the sunlight rising in tiers on the hills that circled the town. Broad-leaved trees swaying on delicate trunks. The fronds casting their shadows over the blue waters. An illustration from a picture book. Beautiful and remote. But now they were here. Unmistakably here. The brilliant sunshine like nothing Emily had ever seen. The heat baking through the heavy fabric of her dress and making the hair at the nape of her neck curl. The houses weren't pastels at all, but vibrant orange and yellow, blue and green and pink. The illusion of space had been just that, an illusion. People pressed close about, dressed in brightly colored kerchiefs, carrying baskets, chickens and donkeys getting underfoot, everyone talking, laughing, arguing, crying their wares. And now, please join me in welcoming Lauren Willick. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks so much for having me. 
You have quite a collection of novels already, 12 pink carnation stories, several standalones, of which The Summer Country is one, and various joint projects. Could you sketch out your writing career for us and especially how you got into it after starting as a lawyer? Well, it's so funny because everyone always asks me how I went from being a lawyer to being a writer, and I feel like such a fraud because it's actually the other way around. The writing came first. So I was that annoying child who decided when I was six that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And so I spent my youth reading Writer's Digest instead of Seventeen Magazine and going to writing camp because there actually is such a thing as writer camp. And then I went off after college to get a Ph.D. in history on the theory that, okay, I, I had done all the writing classes. Now it was time to gather material. And I was going to write one of those sweeping, epic, thousand-page doorstop novels that were so popular in the 80s when I was growing up. And it was going to be absolutely historically accurate because, of course, you know, grad school would teach me how to write an absolutely historically accurate historical novel. Um, and then, of course, I got to grad school and realized that the kind of history you do in grad school is so different from the kind of history you need to write a really good, really riveting historical novel. And I was going a little bit nuts thinking in footnotes, and I decided I really had to just write something for fun. So my, my actual period was I was working on a dissertation on the English Civil War, on royalist conspiracies during the English Civil War, 1646 to 1649, and I needed something else to play with. So I started to write a book just really for my own amusement to keep me sane about spies during Napoleonic Wars. It was a little bit Scarlet Pimpernel, a little bit Blackadder, um, romance, adventure, mystery, just really genre stew. And I wrote it for my own amusement, filled with inside jokes, and it was never meant to be the book. But I gave it to a friend who gave it to a friend of hers who was an agent. And next thing I knew, I got a call in my tiny little Cambridge apartment um, saying, hi, I'm X agent and I'd like to represent you and I spilled coffee all over myself and two months later I had a book contract and of course the crazy thing about was at that point I had decided that I really didn't like grading student papers (laughs) and you know that maybe maybe being an academic and spending seven years working on a dissertation about three years of history wasn't for me so I had moved down the block to Harvard Law And I got that first book contract my first month of law school. So that's how it happened upside down. So I wound up, I had my first book came out my 2L year of law school. My second book came out my 3L year of law school. And I started at a law firm in New York as a litigator um, under, well, book three came out my first week at the firm. And I was under contract for books four and five. And so I made it about a year and a half as a litigator and then juggling the two careers became too much. But it was a rather, it was a sort of bizarre trajectory. And sometimes I think, you know, had I gotten that book contract six months earlier, I would never have gone to law school. On the other hand, I'm glad I did because it was exposure to a whole different world. And I've learned that people pat you on the head a lot less when they find out you've been um, at Harvard Law. (laughs) That's probably true. (laughs) That's a wonderful story. So what in particular drew you to uh, the summer country? Well, that's another one of those crazy stories. So um, The Summer Country was another one of these books I never meant to write. Most of my books have been set in England or thereabouts. Um, But years and years ago, actually 
almost exactly 10 years ago to be precise, my two best friends from grad school and I went on a Caribbean vacation. And this was supposed to be a chance to just lie on lounges on the beach and sip fruity drinks and generally relax. Um, But the problem was we were all historians. We weren't really used to relaxing. We were used to sort of operating on large amounts of caffeine, and we tended to live in libraries. So none of us had been exposed to direct sunlight for a really long time. So we got out there on the beach, and we burned, and we just didn't know what to do with ourselves. So we decided relaxing wasn't going to work, so we did what historians on vacation do. We looked for the nearest old thing. And that old thing just happened to be a plantation house. And there was a tour going on, so we attached ourselves to the tour. And the tour guide told us a story about how the plantation had burned down and a child, the Portuguese ward of the owner, had died in the fire. But the thing was, this child was neither Portuguese nor the owner's ward. She was his own daughter by an enslaved woman. And he had snuck her into the household and Europeanized her by claiming that she was the child of a friend by a Portuguese woman. And, well, the story, it was all very gothic. You know, the rest of the story was all about how the plantation owner went mad after his child died and spent the rest of his life chasing the shade on the balcony, rocking and rocking and rocking, and how you could still hear him rocking still, and all that, which was, you know, fascinating and gothic and atmospheric. But I kept wondering... Where was the mother in this? Who was that unnamed enslaved woman? Where was she in this story? Had she been brought into the household, too, as a nursemaid for her child, you know, where she could be near her child, but her child would never know her as mother? Um, had her child been wrenched from her? Had she agreed to her child being taken from her? And no one could tell me anything. No one knew who she was. No one knew her name. She just wasn't part of the story. And so we went back, um, we went back home, and I was writing a totally different sort of book. I was writing one of my Pink Carnation series about Napoleonic spies, but I couldn't get this unnamed woman out of my head. I kept wondering about her, who she was, what she must have felt, what her story was. And so actually, and my editor asked me why I watch right next. I said, I have this idea for a book set in the Caribbean around a ruined plantation. She's like, um, yeah, no, you can write whatever you want. <laughs> as long as it's in England. And then she stopped and she thought a moment and said, actually, you can write wherever you want, so long as it's set in England in the 19th century. And so I thought, okay, that's it. I'm, you know, maybe I wasn't meant to write this book. And I went and I wrote um, a bunch of other books set in England in the 19th century, but I could not get the story out of my head. And finally, um, a couple of years ago, my agent said, okay, stop, just stop talking about this already and write it. And so I did. Well, actually, I spent two years researching it, and then I stopped talking about it and wrote it, because this book, for whatever reason, this story chose me, and it wouldn't let go. This is good. So it actually starts in England in the 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) I guess because England in the 19th century, it's where I'm meant to write. But yeah, so it begins as, so so this story is in many ways my homage to um, the English writer M.M.K., who wrote three very sweeping epics of colonial, the colonial era British Empire. And her stories so often feature English women, or in one memorable case, an American, who go off to remote parts of the world and have their worldviews shattered. And so I, I knew I needed to start with an English woman going abroad with all of the 
pre- well, with all of the preconceptions and prejudices of English women of that era. And in the case of this character, Emily, in particular, that very um, mid-Victorian imperial sense of can-do, the, the sort of English woman who is convinced she can do everything and organize everyone. So that, that's really where the story begins. Yes, let's talk about uh, Emily then. Um, She's not the Victorian angel about the house. She's quite a determined young lady, and uh, and she's a wonderful character, actually. Thank you. Well, I mean, in some ways, she was my answer to the Victorian angel of the hearth, because I had written another book set in this period um, in the suburbs of London, sort of around that whole, because... um, Emily, my my heroine, comes from a middle-class family. We're not talking the aristocracy here or the people starving in cellars. We're talking that rising middle class, um, which has its own sets of manners and mores, and they are really the heart of that Angel of the Hearth movement where women were meant to be demure and stay at home. And I had written a book where I had a woman trapped in that milieu who was forced into the Angel of the Hearth road. Role And Emily is really the, the anti-angel of the hearth, because often when you find these societal archetypes, they, they arise in opposition to what's actually there on the ground. And what you really had in, in England, particularly in the 1830s and 40s, when Emily was growing up, were, were a lot of um, strong activist women, that you had a very strong evangelical movement in England in the... Um, 1830s, and with it, a rise of women being involved in causes, and particularly abolition. So my imaginary character, Emily, grows up with a mother who is a noted abolitionist, who's a founding member of the Bristol and Clifton Ladies Auxiliary Anti-Slavery Society, who's good friends with Hannah Moore, who's a real activist, evangelical abolitionist, and so on. And so she's grown up in this milieu where, um, you know, women are being the, the opposite of the angel of the heart. They're going out there, they're doing things, they're changing the world. And my heroine, she knows she has no, no gift for causes, but what she wants to do is heal people. She's a born nurse. She likes taking charge of people. She's a vicar's daughter, so she spent her in a slum parish, and she spent her, her life taking care of her father's flock. And so she's actually... Um, my, my Florence Nightingale character, because this is the exact same year, 1854, when you've got the Crimean War and Florence Nightingale, the lady of, with the lamp, revolutionizing nursing. So sorry, that was a huge historical info dump. But basically, those are the two strands that, that create Emily, that sort of earlier generation of women who were out there um, fighting for what they thought was right and making their voices heard, and the generation concurrent with Emily, who are there doing things like getting out there and changing nursing and really, you know, setting, setting the um, framework for things we take for granted in our modern world. So she's, yeah, she's the opposite of a wilting violet, even though in her own estimation, she considers herself a sort of marginal character because she's the poor cousin in a wealthy merchant family. So she's always been the one who's sort of there on the side at parties. But, you know, she, it's, she doesn't resent it. She figures that's not her role. She's very happy taking care of people, and that's her job, which I think is a little bit of compensation for being the poor cousin. 
But, I mean, her... So there are two catalysts for Emily in the story, and one is that her father has just remarried, and he's remarried a very capable woman who's taken over all those parish duties that used to be Emily's. And so suddenly she's basically, she's out of a job, and she doesn't really want to to marry the curate who's being thrust at her, and she doesn't want to you know, go and be the charity, the object of the charity of her wealthier relations and you know, do the social rounds under their aegis. When she's no longer sort of running her father's power, she's left without a role. At the same time, her beloved grandfather dies and leaves her an unexpected inheritance in Barbados. And so that's where the story begins, with my heroine going to Barbados to see what's up with this plantation she has very unexpectedly inherited. And part of the reason for her going is because suddenly she has no life left to her in England. And she finds out when she gets there that the plantation is in ruins. This is Peverell's. And there is a double timeline in the story. So we we follow the story of Emily and the people associated with her after the, the plantation has burned down. And then there is the second story where I think I would say that the most important character is Jenny, uh, who I'd like to talk about now. Mm-hmm. Where is before the plantation burns down, all the events that lead up to it. And of course, we're not going to tell people what those are, <laughs> <laughs> but we can talk about the people who are involved. Tell us about Jenny. Right. So really, the story takes place in two timelines. The heart of the story is the 18 teens, um, where there's a rising. Um, Barbados is one major rising of enslaved people. And then the we also have Emily's story in the 1850s. And so the story goes back and forth between Emily's story in the 1850s, trying to figure out what happened years before and the core story in the 18-teens, which is really Jenny's story. So Jenny is, she's a survivor. She is the body servant, the personal servant of an heiress named Marianne Beckles. Um, She was, but she's also Marianne's first cousin. Um, Marianne's guardian is her uncle, this man, Colonel Lyons, and Jenny is his illegitimate daughter by an enslaved woman. Um, and Colonel Lyons, when he came over to be Marianne's guardian, when Jenny was very small, gave Jenny his own daughter as a gift to his niece. Jenny and Marianne have grown up together, but the relationship is inevitably tainted, of course, by the fact that Marianne owns Jenny. So it's a very, they're family, but they're not. And Jenny has learned that there is treachery all around her, and the best way to survive is to observe, to stay silent, and to bide her time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And how did you create Jenny? Uh, You mentioned in the historical note that it's really difficult to find information about how a slave woman in that period would have thought. Yes. It's funny. I've always worked in such well-documented time periods before, and when I began researching the Barbados book, I was shocked by how few primary source documents I was able 
to find. There was one book which talks uh, about enslaved women, which talks about navigating from the silences. And I read that line and I wanted to weep because, you know, silence, it's actually one of my advisors in grad school referred to um, researching early modern England as trying to read through a phone book because there is so much material you can never get through it all. And this was the opposite. But there, there is some material out there. There are remarkably letters that have survived because while only 2% of the enslaved population on Barbados was literate, that 2% was mostly women. Um, and they were mostly upper servants like Jenny in similar positions to Jenny. And these letters that we do have that have survived are amazing. They, they, they give me chills because the voices still come across so strong after all these years. Um, on top of that, I also had the testimony of the participants in the 1816 slave rising. And that, of course, needs to be taken with a grain of salt because this, this testimony was drawn out during interrogations. But my Jenny character was partially based on one of the women who participated in the 1816 rising, a woman named Nanny Grigg. And we have her own words about why she was there, what she did, and it's just amazing hearing those voices. But though, again, sort of interrogation records always need to be taken with a grain of salt. They do, of course. And, you know, too much silence is problematic for a novelist. But silence is also very freeing for a novelist, I think, in a way that it's not for a historian. Yes, I think that's actually, as a historical novelist, you're drawn to those empty spaces. That was where this book came from in the first place, was an absence, the absence of the mother in the story, I was told. And one of the benefits about being a historical novelist is that although you owe a duty and a debt to the people you're writing about, and you do have a duty to them to get it as right as you possibly can and to do your research, you still you have the freedom to try to spin out what you do have to fill those empty spaces in a way that you can't as a professional historian. And I think that's one of the great benefits of historical fiction is filling in those silences and telling the stories that might otherwise not be told, fleshing out those lives where we don't have the documentary evidence to provide a proper footnoted work. Yes, yes, I agree. I remember reading, I think it was on Goodreads, somebody said something about historical fiction giving voice to the voiceless. And of course, women were almost all voiceless um, through most of history. So it's a particular service, I think, to write about women of different stations. And the, you know, the more lower ranking they are, the more likely it is that they have not been able to have a voice. And, you know, I, I grew up, of course, on historical fiction, and there was a strong trend when I was um, a nascent reader for female-driven historical fiction. I grew up on Jean Platy and all of those sorts of books, but they were always about the sort of women who are well-documented, the noble women, the queens, the aristocracy. And one of the things I've noticed recently in historical fiction is a move from reconstructing the lives of women who are well-documented, for whom we do have that sort of material, to trying to reconstruct the lives of ordinary women, where there really just isn't much information there. And I think it's a fascinating shift and such a worthwhile project. Let's talk a little bit about the dual timelines. Are there particular advantages and disadvantages to juggling two separate timelines, even if they're connected as yours are? 
Yes, there are always pluses and minuses. In the case of the summer country, um, funnily enough, I had initially toyed with the idea of writing it as a linear saga because, again, this was my homage to MMK and the Thornbirds in North and South and those giant sweeping epics I'd grown up on. And so my initial... Um, thought was that I would write it starting with Jenny and just go straight through to Emily, that this was the story of multiple generations of women and the way slavery impacted, uh, slavery and the legacy of slavery impacted all of their lives going forward across the generations. Um, And I sat down to try to write this big, sweeping, linear saga, and it just went right that way. And so I went back to writing a – most of my books have been a dual timeline narrative because I am fascinated by the way the past impacts the present and the echoes across the generation. And in a dual timeline narrative, you really see that. You see um, the, the, the way the past shapes the current generation, although in this case, of course, the current generation is 1854. I call these sorts of books puzzle box books because by layering the two narratives, it, almost, it presents the reader with a sort of mystery. You have to figure out how these narratives, as you're reading, you have to figure out how these narratives are connected. You know, what is the relevance of the earlier timeline for the later timeline? And of course, gradually as they come together, you see, but while you're reading it, I think it forces a certain active kind of reading because you are forced to speculate about what the connections are and why these people are here and how they're related. So it it almost, even if a book doesn't have a mystery plot, it introduces a sort of mystery element. Yes, I can see that. Um, The two halves are not entirely separate. There is, in particular, um, Marianne Davenant, uh, who is Marianne Beckles, you mentioned her earlier, is in both halves of the story as a young woman and then an older woman. She's a strong character, uh, if not always a pleasant character. (laughs) Tell us a bit more about her. You talked about her in reference to Jenny, but talk about her as herself. Yes, Marianne is my anti-heroine, and also in many ways I find her um, a tragic character. She's the heiress to Beckles, um, but her, of course, her problem is she is born a woman. And so although she inherits this vast sugar plantation, she's unable to run it herself. She's given over to the guardianship of an uncle who decides that actually he'd rather like to run this, to have this plantation from his own and systematically sets up a campaign of, um, to discredit her and maybe possibly extending his um, ambitions to murder. And so Marianne is in a state of siege. Her one ally is Jenny and she this creates in Marianne a sort of paranoia, well, as it would. So she, she's incredibly, um, her, her primary mode is survival, um, staying alive, holding on to what she views as hers, and it makes her ruthless and in some cases rather unpleasant. And we get to see she is the one character who we see in both timelines. We meet her in 1854 as a matriarch, as the owner of Beckles who runs everything and has her um, grandson firmly under her thumb. It's impossible to imagine her as vulnerable. And then we meet her in the 18-teens as a younger, as a um, 19-year-old, I was about to say young girl, but as a 19-year-old who is under threat, actual threat, 
from her uncle who may be trying to either get her committed to an insane asylum or just do away with her. And so we watch her progress over the years and her opportunities to become a better or happier person and how these are just thwarted by circumstances and thwarted by her own nature. And so she's she's a very unhappy character, but in many ways one of the linchpins of the novel. Another linchpin, uh, I can't say he's present in both timelines because he's gone, uh, obviously, otherwise there would be no story in the later timeline. But uh, Emily's grandfather, Jonathan Fenty, is uh, an important character, I think, in both sides of the story. Um, He's my Horatio Alger rags to riches, right? So I was fascinated by, I was researching the summer country. Oh my goodness, there was so much I wanted to put in this book. But one of the things that really interested me was the group of... um, poor white inhabitants known as redlegs who lived really in their own community in the hills of the parish known as St. Andrew and were looked down on. I mean, the, the, the story goes that even the slaves gave them alms. They were so poor and destitute and just generally in a bad way. And it was very hard for a redleg to rise in the world. But... Um, Emily's grandfather is given a position as bookkeeper on Peveril's estate and then makes an advantageous marriage and winds up as the head of a shipping empire in Bristol. And so he's a man who's come very far but also has a great deal to hide. I can't let you go without asking you about the Turner clan because the Davenants and the Fentys are in some ways the central part of the story. Um, The Turners are connected, but we don't find out how until later. Um, But they they represent a a very different side of Barbados. What can you tell us about them? Well, so when Emily arrives in Barbados, you know, her her cousin with whom she's traveling, who's now the head of the family firm, is all nervous because they're about to go meet her grand their grandfather's business partner, the richest man in Barbados, London Turner, and they get there and he is Afro-Caribbean. And no one knows how to react because it never, ever occurred to any of them that the head of a merchant empire could be anything but white. And I based the Turner clan very closely on real Afro-Caribbean merchant families. And it's this, another fascinating research rabbit hole was that there was, even before emancipation, a, um, a strong free Afro-Caribbean population in Bridgetown And by the time of emancipation, certainly by the 1850s, you had a very wealthy Afro-Caribbean merchant community who were living lives that would have been entirely familiar to the Bristol merchant class. Um, It's that same Victorian bourgeois lifestyle where Mrs. Turner... um, the, the wife of their host is on half a dozen committees and, you know, committees for the relief of this and that, the Athenaeum Committee, the Library Committee, sort of all the sorts of things that Emily's wealthy aunt does back in Bristol. And it was just, I, I loved reading about this group and I wanted to bring them into it. And Emily's counterpart is Mr. Turner's nephew um, in a London and Edinburgh-educated doctor who, of course, faces the um, disadvantage of being Afro-Caribbean in a world where most medical professionals are white. I'm glad you brought him in. He was next on my list to ask you about Dr. Braithwaite. Tell us about Dr. Braithwaite in addition to his training. What kind of person is he? He's very reserved. I think he's had to be. You know, he was, so he was born a slave 
and was freed just a little bit before emancipation actually came through, but was sent to England to be educated, um, raised in the house of a clergyman in England who educated him, then sent off to school, and is both, I mean, because, of course, you know, the medical training in England works differently than in the U.S., particularly in this time period. And so being a physician and a surgeon were two different things. But some people did both, and so he's both a physician and a surgeon. He studied at University College London and the University of Edinburgh, and you know, for anyone who's interested, I based him on a bunch of real people who were um, Afro-Caribbean men who came and were educated in England and in Scotland, particularly in Scotland, and then went back home to their native countries to try to practice medicine and faced various stumbling blocks and disadvantages. But Nathaniel, on the one hand, is a respected member of the medical community, but here in Barbados, he always bears the stigma of having once been a slave, and he is, so in real life, so the the Barbados General Hospital, to sort of take a step back, was founded in 1844, 10 years before my book takes place, um, partially because after emancipation, which came about in 1839, um, you wound up with an influx of destitute and ill, formerly enslaved people into Bridgetown. And this was a real issue, and part of the answer to that was to found a charitable hospital, which had a staff of, of course, I could have told you this last year, but now I'm forgetting the exact number of doctors. But anyway, in real life, um, the entire medical staff was white. I took a little historical liberty here and added Nathaniel in on the theory that given his uncle's incredible money and clout in my fictional world, that, you know, and the amount of money that my, my fictional character, London Turner, gives towards the founding of the hospital, they can find a place for Nathaniel. But of course, then he has the discomfort of being the one Afro-Caribbean doctor there. And so he is very reserved because he is aware that he is constantly on probation and he's kind of prickly because he's constantly on probation and really unjustly so that he's always had to be 10 times better than everyone else just to prove that he can play on the same level. I would love to ask you more about your research process but uh, we're running out of time so I'm going to ask you instead uh, what you would like readers to take away from the summer country. What I really would like readers to take away is that sense of living in a vanished world. I've always loved those books where you know nothing about a time or a place before you read that book, and then you emerge feeling as though you've lived there. And I feel like Colonial Barbados is one of those things that most people don't know terribly much about. And I'd like people to step away feeling um, like they do have a sense of what this vanished world was like and also of the horrible, horrible things that happen when we take for granted people's basic humanity, when we class some people as less than people, because this book really is all about the ramifications of the twisted system of slavery and how that impacts human relationships, not just within that generation, but for generations and generations to come. And I think it's a, unfortunately, salutary, although I never set out to tell lessons with my books, while I was writing it, this book, it felt increasingly relevant. I agree. I mean, I will tell you as a reader, I knew nothing about Barbados when I started reading it. And I I felt like I was living there. You know, we, we didn't go into this, but the descriptions are beautiful. And the, there's a real sense of place and time and character. Um, so I, I heartily recommend this book to all of our listeners. Thank you so much. 
The summer country came out just last month, and but I see from your website that you already have other projects underway, a, a dizzling array of projects, actually. <laughs> I don't know how you managed to do all this writing with the oh, family and so on, but what can you tell us about them? Well, my next book is a team effort, because in addition to writing my own book, I co- my own books, I co-write with two good friends, Karen White and Beatrice Williams. We have two previous books that we co-wrote together, and our third attempt is coming out this January. It's called All the Ways We Said Goodbye, and is set in World War I France, World War II France, and 1960s France. And I'm also working on my next standalone novel right now, and I have now, I've moved away from the Caribbean and back into the 20th century. I'm writing about 18 intrepid Smith women, Smith College grads, who went um, right to the front lines during World War I to offer humanitarian relief. It's just an amazing story, these 18 Smith women who are like, let's just pack up and go to the war zone and do good for people. And it's, I am wallowing in the sources right now. It's amazing reading, and I, I hope I can turn it into some kind of book. Well, you absolutely have to come back and talk to me about that one, because the New Books Network is based at Smith. I don't know if you realize oh that. Oh, my goodness. I did not realize that. That's marvelous. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It was so lovely talking to you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Lauren Willig about the summer country. Find out more about her at www.laurenwillig.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.